Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Penny Sarche. And I'm Rowan Hooper. And we're joined this week by a lovely familiar voice from New York, New Scientist US editor Tiffany O'Callaghan. Hi, Tiff. Hi, guys. Coming up on the show, in the light of news of the US Supreme Court moving to remove the right to abortion, we'll discuss what research tells us about what this will mean for women's health. We're also going to be discussing a new, sort of old way to reduce the terrible environmental impact of beef. And we're going to be hearing from primatologist Franz de Waal on Darwinian feminism, amongst other things. We're going to be discussing moves to establish environmental protection laws in space. And I've been investigating the invasion of North America by earthworms. Earthworms? Oh, dear. <laughs> yes. All that to come. And here's your usual reminder that if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20, you can get a 20% discount off a subscription to New Scientist. That link is newscientist.com slash pod20. Okay, so let's start with Roe v. Wade. Yes, this is the 1973 Roe v. Wade U.S. Supreme Court decision, which protected the right to abortion in the U.S. And this is very much in the news here after a draft opinion from the Supreme Court was leaked earlier this week. It was written by Justice Samuel Alito and strongly suggests that the nation's highest court is on the verge of actually overturning that Roe v. Wade decision. Now, the official decision is expected to come down in June, um, and to be very clear, right now, women still have access to abortion care across the U.S. So we looked at what it could mean for women's health should Roe actually be overturned. And I imagine it's not going to be good. Yeah, unfortunately, it's pretty grim. Um, We know from a wealth of research now that restricting access to abortion doesn't actually reduce the number of abortions, only their safety. So a 2009 study showed that abortion-related deaths are a staggering 34 times higher in countries with restrictive abortion laws. And that's largely because of how dangerous they can be when performed by people who aren't medically trained or, or if they're done in unsanitary conditions? Yeah, exactly. So according to that study, around the world, some 68,000 women die every year from unsafe abortions, and that's primarily from hemorrhage and infection. Another 5 million have long-term health complications from these procedures. And that's really devastating because abortion is generally actually one of the very safest gynecological procedures. Yeah, that really stood out to me in the piece that you published that it's actually usually much safer than childbirth. 
Yeah, very much so. Uh, the most recent figures from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that there are 0.41 deaths per 100,000 legal abortions, so fewer than one death per 100,000 legal abortions, compared to 23.8 deaths per 100,000 live births. So that's a dramatic difference. So if the decision is overturned in a couple of months, what will it mean for abortion access across the United States? So it won't mean that there's a national ban um, from the outset. Instead, what will happen is, like a lot of laws in the U.S., it will then vary state by state. So according to the Guttmacher Institute, which is a U.S. reproductive rights research group, it's likely that 26 states will ban abortion in some way. That means that access to abortion for people in those states will depend on whether they have resources to travel to seek care. Um, and maybe there are lessons here for what it used to be like for people in Ireland who had to come to the UK for abortion care before um, the Irish people voted overwhelmingly in 2018 to protect the right to abortion there. Okay, thanks, Jeff. We'll be watching this closely. Now we're going to talk about the small matter of saving the world. And this week's solution is to do it by eating microbes. Yummy. Yeah, tasty. <laughs> we're both quite very interested, really, aren't we, in the environmental impact of what we eat. And mm. there's news this week that if a fifth of the world's ruminant meat consumption was switched to microbial proteins, it would more than halve global deforestation rates and related carbon emissions. Wow, that is a big effect, isn't mm. it? What does it mean here by microbial proteins? Is, is that corn or something different? Yeah, so this study looked at microbial proteins made in factories, and perhaps the best known example of that kind of thing is corn, which is made by industrially fermenting a specific type of fungus. Yeah, it might not be very well known in the US because it, it hasn't been available there for very long, or as long as it has in, in the UK and Europe, but it is quite big here. So why can switching to products like this have this massive impact on deforestation? You know, is it simply because it just replaces the horribly damaging beef industry. Yeah, simple, but it's always worth remembering just like how devastating the beef industry is. Um, it just has this phenomenal impact worldwide. So clearing land to ranch cattle or to grow cattle feed, that those are two of the biggest drivers of deforestation in the tropics, which are some of the most biodiverse places on earth. And that's before you even consider the methane that these animals release and how that contributes to the greenhouse effect. So it was already known that microbial proteins have less of an environmental impact than eating ruminant animals like cows and, and also sheep. But the new study reported on by Adam Vaughan this week looked at the role these foods could play in the future as populations grow. OK, so it's modelled different scenarios into the future. Yeah, exactly. They modelled um, various scenarios with differing amounts of, of switching ruminant meat consumption per person to microbial proteins instead by the year 2050. Mm. And the researchers were surprised by how big an impact their model suggested. So even in the lowest scenario, a scenario where 20% switch, that was enough to more than halve annual deforestation and carbon dioxide emissions. Well, that's really hopeful, isn't it? Because 20% seems really doable, doesn't it? It's like one dinner, one dinner in the work week. Yeah, right? yeah. I, actually, I've just been reading about this in George Monbiot's new book called Regenesis, and uh, he makes a pancake out of flour made by bacteria that's mm. got a high level of protein in it, and he's a big fan of it. But look, what do you think? You know, how big of a solution is this? 
I think it's a useful tool in the toolbox. One one of the big things about these microbial proteins is that we already have the technology to make food from microbial protein, which Mm. isn't really true for lab-grown meat yet. So it's a good option in that it's real and it's happening and we know how to do it. But also I tend to lean towards, you know, plant-based diets have become a lot more popular recently. And I think there's still a lot to be said for getting as much of your protein as you can from pulses, chickpeas, lentils, because they have such low carbon emissions. And they're also not processed foods either from a health perspective. Yeah. But yeah, it is so encouraging that um, these things are ready to go and it's ready. we're ready to roll them out and, and, the, and the attitudes are changing. Yeah, and if you think about things like meat-free Mondays, like a 20% switch isn't that hard of a sell to people. But one thing that interested me in Adam's report was that synthesizing food in factories could also be a sensible step for adapting to climate change because extreme weather will increasingly impact agriculture, which is pretty bleak, really, if you think about it. <laughs> Yeah, well, it is in bleak in one way, but, you know, turn it around and think mm. of it as an opportunity because, you know, if you just look at the US, they use an area larger than all of Italy just to grow soya beans. And if you grew that protein in a factory, you'd need 1,700 times less land to do it. And then so all that land you save can be rewilded. And that's a massive amount. And that's just the US. And so just think what you could do worldwide. It's really incredible potential here. Let's take a break. First, we want to tell you about the return of New Scientist Live to London. Yes, this is the world's greatest festival of ideas and discoveries, and it's back with a brand new format combining the best of both live and virtual experiences. It's taking place on the 7th to the 9th of October 2022 at the London Excel Centre and also online. And if you just register your interest now, you have the chance to win the ultimate New Scientist package worth over £500. So go to newscientist.com slash nsliveWin to register. We also have a new discovery tour to tell you about. This is to the marine ecosystems of the Azores, departing on the 21st of May for eight days. There are only a few places remaining. You can explore the delights of this mid-Atlantic archipelago with marine biologists, study iconic whales and dolphins, and visit basalt vineyards and volcanic lagoons. You can find out more about that tour at newscientist.com slash Azores. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, we talk about environmental issues all the time on the pod. 
But in this next segment, we're expanding our remit to discuss the case for space environmentalism. That is, the argument that we should consider the orbital space around the Earth as an additional ecosystem, and that this region should be subject to the same sort of regulations as the oceans and the atmosphere. Yeah, one of the leading figures of this movement is uh, Andy Lawrence. He's a professor of astronomy at the University of Edinburgh, and I spoke with him earlier. Andy, thanks for joining the pod. So tell us why we need environmental laws in space. Well, uh, things are changing fast and rather scarily. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of activity in space, always have been. It's very important to humanity. But there's some looming problems. The big one that everybody knows is space junk. You know, space is becoming more crowded and collisions uh, dangers are going up all the time. Not just satellites, but leftover bits, broken off debris, etc., the second one is, um, you know, I'm an astronomer, and as uh, I think most people know, a couple of years ago, we started getting a bit sort of uh, cross because suddenly there were streaks appearing in our images. And we thought, oh, where did that come from? What's, what's going on? Who said they could do that? Etc. There are other things coming up. I think legal and liability issues are going to grow a lot. You know, who, who do I sue if your satellite crashes into mine or lands on my house or crashes mm. into a plane? People in the industry, but also in academia, have been discussing these problems, are quite aware of them. But it tends to be, you know, each in their little area, a bit compartmentalized. So I think the big change, the change of mindset we have to go through is to think of this as an environmental problem. With the streaks you were mentioning, like that's mm -hmm. a reference to, to the Starlink um, satellites from SpaceX and, and other companies want to put up a load of satellites into low Earth orbit to, yep. amongst other things, provide global internet access. Now, don't the benefits of all these satellites up there outweigh the costs of having lots of satellites up there? Yeah, yeah yes and no, or no and yes. Um, we've been doing internet from space for many years. The Starlink thing is not new. The new thing is the way that they're doing it with thousands and thousands of satellites in low Earth orbit, as opposed to big satellites higher up. And yes, of course, connecting up the world is a good thing. You want to be a bit careful sort of um, accepting the PR about joining up the world because internet from space has a big part to play, but you, you're really not going to uh, join up the whole of, of humanity with individual end user stations. You know, I think most people in the industry accept that a better way to think about it is that it's part of the mix of fiber and microwave and so on. And it's going to be important. And we all have to learn to live with each other. So, yeah, we, we as astronomers, we can't say, no, you must stop. You can't do that. You know, that's just silly. But likewise, satellite companies have to realize what an impact they're having on other people. Yeah. Well, you mentioned about, you know, who do you sue if something goes wrong? And I, I wanted to ask about what we can do from a legal point of view. You've been an expert witness for a case currently being heard in the U.S. Court of Appeal challenging the licenses given by the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, to Starlink on the grounds that they didn't do an environmental impact assessment about the satellites. So what could happen with this case? Yeah, well, specifically, it could mean that the US Court of Appeals tells the FCC that they have to go back and do a proper thorough environmental impact assessment before granting more licenses. But the real thing is it'll set a precedent that space is to be considered uh, a shared environment, to be treated this, this way. If we can't make environmental space laws, because we're having trouble enough making 
decent laws on earth, right? Um, yeah, what yeah. what else could we do to re- address the problem? You know, could we have non-reflecting satellites or is there some way we can clear up the, all the junk up there, the debris? Uh, well, all these things help. And um, the SpaceX engineers have actually been very cooperative with astronomers trying to paint things black and put visors on and so on. And those experiments have not been very successful so far, but um, they have been trying. And yeah, we want better law. Some areas of space law are very rigorously defined and some are extremely loose. And the key thing, I think, is um, people treating it more holistically and thinking about the impact on others. I mean, there's three classic ways this looks like an environmental problem. One is that um, it's a shared space. What you do has an impact on others. The second is that costs are externalized. And our case in astronomy is a classic example. I mean, they've got a perfect right to launch these satellites, but suddenly they're making the streaks. And, you know, people say to us, well, you know, you could uh, write some new software, take the streaks out or figure out when they're coming over and avoid them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that costs effort and that costs money, you know, and that's taxpayers' pounds paying for that. Hmm. All the science has been more expensive. So externalizing costs. The third thing, and this is really relevant to your original question here, is that the problem is incremental just like it is with other environmental problems. You know, and you say, well, you know, one more coal mine's okay. You know, it's, um, oh, a few more satellites is, is, is all right, you know, but it all adds up. So where do you stop? And that is, I have to say, a very hard kind of problem to solve. One of the co-authors on this Nature paper, Maura Bajar, who's been banging on about space environmentalism for quite a long time, actually. He's the kind of real leader on this. His idea is that we have to define a, a carrying capacity for orbit and a kind of space footprint. And it's still not clear how we do that, but something like that. So there's some metric that you can say, what I'm doing here, if you extrapolate that as a good thing or a bad thing. But I think it's going to take quite a long time. And things are changing so fast with all the new satellites going up. It's a bit scary about whether we'll um, figure out how to solve these problems before things have got catastrophically bad. Tiff, as this week's American on the pod, you're going to like this one. Did you know that for 12,000 years, large parts of northern North America have had no earthworms? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you know that? (laughs) Um, I was quite shocked by this, but then uh, it made a bit more sense because if you think about the whole of this region was covered by massive ice sheet, covered, you know, most of Canada and some of the northern United States. And that killed off all the worms that were there for thousands of years. And after the ice sheets retreated at the end of the last glaciation, about 12,000 years ago, the worms just didn't come back. I'd never thought about this before. Worms are just so important for soil health, aren't they? That you just Mm. assume that there's everywhere where there's soil. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, usually they are. What I didn't say is the worms were absent for 12,000 years, but now they're, they're coming back, they're invading. And that started about 200, 300 years ago. And so you say invaded, it, it makes it sound like they're sort of marching into North yeah. America. <laughs> yeah. Um, what kind of, is that a good thing or is it having a, a bad effect as invasive species often do? Uh, yeah, it is having um, a bad effect. I had no idea that this is a thing, like earthworm invasion. turns out it's quite a well-studied field. But most of the work, and naturally enough, has looked at what happens 
below ground to the below ground ecosystem. But this new thing I've been reading about um, looks at the effect on the plants and the above ground communities, uh, arthropod communities. And it's in the journal Biology Letters from ecologists from the University of Munich. And what did they find? Well, they found quite dramatic change that um, they looked at areas with low, medium and high invasion of earthworms and found that the total arthropod abundance and biomass and species richness declined from areas where, you know, of low to those with high invasion status. Mm, so not only do they engineer the soil, but they can also have a big effect on the above ground ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. So did the worms invade sort of under their own steam, as it were, or did European settlers bring them into North America? Well, actually, I did ask the, the researcher this, and um, it's mainly from the settlers and farmers bringing them in either deliberately or inadvertently with plants. But naturally, they do invade as well, but only at a rate of 10 metres a year moving north. <laughs> <laughs> right. From invading worms to gender roles in primates. <laughs> yeah, what a change. Yeah, um, so na- natural been, segue. <laughs> yeah. I've been chatting with the primatologist Franz de Waal. Um, you know, he's done some amazing work on chimps and bonobos over the years. I think he's almost had a, a Jane Goodall level of impact in how we think about these animals, um, you know, with his work showing that cooperation and reconciliation is at least as important as competition and fighting um, in explaining primate behaviour and society. Yeah, and, and of course, his genuinely iconic work on primate empathy and concepts of fairness. Yeah. And now he's turned his attention to gender and identity in his new book, Different, What Apes Can Teach Us About Gender. Yeah, I've interviewed him for the magazine. We'll put a link in the notes. But here's a sneak preview where I ask him why we talk about variability in animal personalities, but not so much about variation in sex roles in animals. An additional factor is that there's a certain shyness about sex, you know? If you can talk about violence and dominance and territoriality, um, you feel much more comfortable, most biologists, than talking about sex and eroticism. And, and, And that's also why by bonobos have never really um, caught on with the biologists and the anthropologists is because they, they are a bit... And I notice that when I talk about bonobos, they get nervous. Like, um, Too much uh, sex. Ma- yeah, this makes them nervous. Uh, talking about the clitoris of the bonobo, you know, they, they don't want to do that. At least the, the, the male scientists don't want to do that. That's very unfortunate, is that because sex and power are the two things that are important in life, so to speak, <laughs> and, and one of them is left out. Yeah, yeah well, that... That surprises me a bit that scientists are still effectively behaving like Victorians. But we have had also a long history of denying female sexuality. Females had a passive sexuality and it was the males who sought sex. The females just had to accept it sort of in order to get pregnant and that was all there was to it. But what I personally find at least equally interesting is that there are certain differences that we assume that we don't see. So, for example, it is often assumed that females are less competitive, that females are less hierarchical, that females are less good at being leaders, that uh, the whole concept of alpha female is a sort of counterintuitive to some people because alpha male they can understand, but alpha female they cannot understand. Even though all animals that I know have female hierarchies, all animals that I know have an alpha female, the word pecking order comes from hens, not from roosters. So, so we should keep in mind that this whole idea of that, that females are less competitive, it doesn't hold up really. 
or that females cannot be leaders. It doesn't hold up in the comparison with other primates. I mean, this is all getting onto Darwinian feminism, which you mentioned in the book a little bit. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about that and, and how studying primates has, well, helped expand it? Yeah, so the, the, the Darwinian feminism, I think the first goal of that is that um, to pay attention to the female. We tend to ignore the female. If you look at, at, at books about human evolution, it, it's all male qualities like warfare and, and territoriality and tool use and hunting. And there's very little discussion about what, what the women were doing in all that time. But uh, <laughs> there's an enormous attention for the man. And to the point that, that some people have argued in popular books, and I don't think it's biologists, but it's more popularizers who have said that the fittest individuals in our lineage were the males, you know, as if the females just were dragged along in the evolution of, of, the, of the beautiful human male. So in a nutshell, people say, you know, chimps are the aggressive ones and bonobos are the sex-loving, peaceful apes. And does it make sense to ask why chimps evolved down that route and why bonobos down the, the peaceful route. You know, and because humans are somewhere in the middle, it seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we don't really know. There are speculations that um, the bonobos live in an environment where they have no gorillas, so they have no competition for the ground vegetation with gorillas, and they live maybe in a richer forest, uh, which allows them to travel together. And the, f- the females travel together and they support each other. Chimpanzee females have a tendency to support each other, same way, but they, in the wild, they have to disperse to get enough food. So they cannot travel as a group. And so the ecology, it's, it's thought that the ecology of the bonobo allows close female relationships and of the chimpanzee allows much less of that. And that, that's one of the reasons that in bonobos, the females with the high level of solidarity have taken over, basically, have, have taken the dominant role. I mean, you, you talk about peacemaking, the role of peacemaking and peacekeeping and, and reconciliation in the book. I wondered if you could tell us a, a story about a, a particular example of that that you've seen. Yeah, so the, um, the peacemaking, I started studies of that in the, um, in the 70s. And it started with my observations at the Arnhem Zoo, at the Burger Zoo in Arnhem. That was the first case. I saw a fight between two individuals in the colony, a big fight. And then um, much later in the day, hours later in the day, uh, I saw an enormous commotion in the colony with hooting and, and yelling. And, and in the middle of that, uh, two, ch- two chimpanzees embraced each other and kissed each other. I didn't make much of it at the time, uh, even though it was very puzzling to me. But it's when I left the zoo, I, I would bike to the zoo and back home. When, when I biked back home, I, I, on, I was thinking, well, it's the same two individuals who had the big fight. So that's how, for me, it clicked at some point. I thought, well, that means it's a reconciliation. And at the time, you know, um, we were all obsessed by aggressive behavior. Conrad Lawrence had written his book on aggression, and all the scientists in the world who worked on animals were working on aggressive behavior, including myself. That was my task also at the Arnhem Zoo. And so for me then to go to meetings and, and discuss uh, reconciliation was sort of interesting because I started doing a study of it and documenting it because it, it, after that one case, it became a very predictable event, actually. People were not ready for that. People wanted to hear about aggressive instincts and territorial instincts and dominance. 
but reconciliation was sort of counterintuitive to them. And I still remember scientists saying to me, well, maybe chimps do that because they do a lot of things that we humans do. Maybe chimps will do that. But my animals will never do something like this. <laughs> and, and now we know that reconciliation is found in all social animals. It's like even social birds it's found. It's not just mammals. Fascinating stuff. That was Franz Duval talking about his book, Different, What Apes Can Teach Us About Gender. And we'll put a link to Ron's interview in the show notes. It's really worth the read. That's it for this week. Do rate our show and subscribe and tell all your friends and family to listen. All of them. Uh, <laughs> thanks to our guest on the pod this week, Tiffany O'Callaghan. And thanks also to astronomer Andy Lawrence and to ecologist Malta Yoakum for telling me all about earthworms. I'm Roan Hooper. And I'm Penny Sachet. Bye for now and see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.